China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Li Xiaobing, Don Betts Endowed Chair in International Studies at the University of Central Oklahoma. Today we'll be discussing his recent book, China's New Navy, The Evolution of Plan from People's Revolution to a 21st Century Cold War. Xiaobing, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first question uh, I wanted to ask you is just a bit about your background. I'm interested how, how and why you decided to become a historian and what is the origins of your interest in Chinese Navy? I was uh, born in Beijing. I grew up through the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. In the early 1970s, I enlisted as a private in the People's Liberation Army, and I served in the PLA for two years. Thereafter, until 1978, Deng Xiaoping resumed higher education in China. I enrolled in Nankai University in 1978. After my graduation in 1982, the exchange program established between China and the United States. And my father asked me, is it possible for me to come to America looking for his brothers on Taiwan? My father had six brothers. The Civil War separated the family, four brothers on the mainland China, and three Lee's brothers on Taiwan. For 35 years, there's no communication, no visiting between brothers across the Taiwan Strait. So my father had this hope to see the opportunity for me to come to America as an international student as well as a visitor could have a chance to find his brothers they lost for 35 years. So I enrolled in the history program because of this reason and also my background. So I studied history at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh for master and PhD program. During the second year of my graduate school, I find one of my uncles and uh, he traveled all the way from Taiwan to America. So, and a year later, I brought him back to mainland China. There was a family reunion. So during those times, I interested in the U.S.-China relations, but I realized there was a gap between America and China or the Chinese military or the PLA. So after my graduation from Carnegie Mellon, I began the research on the Chinese military or the People's Liberation Army. Well, that's a fascinating story. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad to hear your your father was, was able to meet up with one of his brothers. I wanted to ask about this really great new book. And, and this was just published by Naval Institute Press. There are books looking at the modern day PLA looking at how it's structured, how it's operated, how it operates its capabilities. Yours does something different. 
you look at the broad sweep of the PLAN's history, so the origins of the PLA Navy and its development throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, up until modern day times. I'm curious, first of all, what was the motivation to write the book? Were there puzzles that you were interested in exploring or were there misconceptions you thought about whether that's the Chinese approach to strategy and warfare that you felt needed to be addressed? Well, during my early years of my research on the PLA, I focused on the PLA Army, the ground operations, the history of the Korean War, the Vietnam War, because during the 90s and the 2000s, pretty much people still worried about the possible PLA invasion of the neighboring countries. But later on, about at the turn of the century, 2010s, all of a sudden, overnight, PLA's Navy became one of the sea powers in the world. It had all the tensions, people worried and uh, concerned about this uh, new naval power. As you mentioned, there were several good books on the PLA Navy or plan, but they focus on the uh, hardware, the ships, the weapon system, and uh, other equipment. So I see there's a gap between the West and the Chinese Navy about the understanding of their operational capacity, not just about what they have, but it's more important about who they are and what they can do. So my book, as you mentioned, focus on the operational history of the plan from 1949 to 2009. So through this uh, historical perspective, we can have a better understanding of the plan by seeing what they came from, what they are now, and what they are going next. What I particularly like about the book is oftentimes when you read when you read analysts of Chinese military strategy, it oftentimes to me feels there's a little bit too much Orientalism in the discussion. And you have a, I think, particularly damning quote from John Keegan, which does not hold up well. His comment that, you know, the Chinese avoid direct warfare. It's a little bit too much Sun Tzu on steroids. And what I really like about this book is it is a unorientalized look at the development of the PLA by focusing, excuse me, the PLAN by focusing on how it developed through sea battles, air engagement, island defenses, um, and moves chronologically through. So um, in that, I think it's a, a valuable contribution. I wonder if we can start at the beginning, and the beginning is not the Warring States period, but, but actually I wonder if we can start in and around the time of the late 1940s. So we have the ROC and the Communist Party of China engaged in a domestic civil war. What at that time, so prior to 1949 in the late 1940s, what did the, the CCP have in terms of maritime capabilities within the PLA? Well, long before the civil war, uh, CCP had interest in the offshore operations. For example, during World War II or the war against Japan's invasion, CCP organized 
their maritime、uh, troops along the eastern coast, and also CCP organized armed rebellion on Taiwan through their sea route support from the mainland. So there were offshore operations before and during the Civil War, but now. After the Civil War, early 1949, or during the Civil War, the PLA established the new navy in April 1949 in East China. And after the founding of the People's Republic of China, October 1949, Mao Zedong, the leader or the founder of the PRC, made the trip to Moscow, try to. Received the naval assistance from、uh, Joseph Stalin for his landing campaign on Taiwan. So finally, by January 1950, Mao and Stalin signed agreement. Stalin agreed to provide naval assistance to Mao's landing operation. But as we know, the Korean War. Changed Mao's plan, and Beijing decided to fight in Korea first, Taiwan the second. So that's the delay of the landing operation on Taiwan. Right after the end of the Korean War, the PLA returned back to their offshore operation against nationalist-held offshore islands. There were about forty-seven offshore islands along the Chinese coast, occupied, defended by Chiang Kai-shek. So, from fifty-four to fifty-five, PLA and PLAN launched the small-scale landing campaigns, took over thirty-two out of forty-seven islands. So, through those operations. Mao Zedong realized the navy is important,、uh, necessary for not only China's defense, but also for the consolidation of the communist、uh, regime on the mainland. So, from sixties to seventies, Mao tried to promote naval development, which was delayed by the Korean War. Somehow, because of the Korean War. Uh, Army and Air Force had lion's share of the military budget. Navy had to wait. So in 1960, finally, Navy get back what they promised and began to build the ships slowly through the 1970s. I wonder if we can just stay in those that first decade or so after the founding of of what would later become the PLA. The PLAN with with the East China Military Region Navy. So the PLA is founded in 1927. So between that period of 27 and 49, the Communist Party under the with the PLA, the Red Army, and then the PLA effectively doesn't have a navy. I'm curious after they develop, begin developing a more specific concerted navy. Do we have any sense of how that experience? First of all, without a navy, and then also for fighting an asymmetric guerrilla war against the Japanese and then the KMT, how did that affect how Mao thought about using the navy and the navy's development? Well, that's the 
uh, lessons they learned during uh, the World War II because of the lack of the uh, naval support. So the Red Army back then during World War II could not provide uh, effective assistance to their operation along the coastal areas. Also, they uh, lost control of the domestic rivers, like Yangtze River and Yellow River, pretty much controlled by the Japanese Navy. So Mao and CCP realized the importance of naval development during World War II. So during the Civil War, the Chinese Communist members began to work inside the Nationalist Navy. Uh, after World War II, airline power provided many ships to the Chiang Kai-shek government. Some of the captured Japanese destroyers, cruisers, Jiang also received the ships from the airline powers like United States and the Great Britain. Chiang Kai-shek began to train his naval officers. So during that time, the Communist Party members enrolled in the Naval College and studied overseas. When they returned, they worked inside a Nationalist Navy and uh, mobilized officers and sailors to defect the Nationalist ships from Chiang Kai-shek's Navy. So in April 1949, when the CCP established their new navy, all the, the warships were captured or defected Chiang Kai-shek ships. That actually is a good segue to another consistent theme in the book, especially the first several chapters when we're, we're looking at the 19 late 1940s, but certainly the 1950s and into the 60s, which is it becomes very clear how important the two-way dynamic between PRC under Mao attempts to retake Taiwan or plans to retake Taiwan, but conversely, threats to the PRC maritime interest shipping emanating from Taiwan also shaped the development of what we'll call the PLAN. So both an offensive desire to retake Taiwan, but also a, a defensive component of having to deal with a, a, for most of that time, a superior ROC Navy. I wonder if you could talk about that dynamic. What were some of the major battles or campaigns or, or worries that shaped the PLAN's development vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan? Uh, Mao and uh... PLA generals realized that the importance, necessity of the naval power because they actually uh, lost a couple of uh, landing campaigns in 1949. For example, in October 1949, the PLA's 10th Army Corps uh, launched a landing campaign against Chiang Kai-shek held the Jinmen of Komoi Island. PLA landing troops failed, and uh, PLA lost almost 10,000 troops on that small island. So Mao was shocked, and he realized the 
offshore operation or landing campaign is modern warfare. The different from the traditional ground war. So thereafter, Mao and PLA began to focus on the naval construction. So in 1954-55, PLA and PLAN began to launch a joint landing campaign, including Army, Navy, and Air Force. For example, their landing campaign against Yijiangshan Island and Dachen Island were successful. They destroyed the garrison on the island and seized those islands in the East China Sea. So from 1954 to 58, the naval development guaranteed PLA's victory over the offshore islands. And in the 1960s, plan left the coast, began to engage nationalist ships in the international water. So that's the major change in the plan's war fighting strategy from a defensive force to an offensive force in 1960s. So there were a couple of major battles in 1965, 1967. The plans, warship, and the torpedo ships sunk Taiwanese ships in the East China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. And I wonder if, if you can talk also a bit about another theme in the book, which is, of course, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is not a typical military in the sense that it is under the direct control of the Communist Party of China, as opposed to swearing an oath of allegiance to the PRC. The period during which you write about the growth of the PLAN is, for much of it, a period of significant political volatility domestically. You you mentioned that you were born during the Cultural Revolution you have the PLAN from the mid-1960s until the mid-1970s experiencing the Cultural Revolution domestically, but also you have a major great power war to the South with the Vietnam War. Can you talk a bit about how politics has affected the PLAN, either in that period of the 1960s, but I'm also curious more generally how you noticed in the course of research and writing politics impacting either the strategy, morale, or capabilities of the PLAN? Well, the the politics still played an important role in the PLA from the recent years, recent event. You can see the loyalty to the party or even to Xi Jinping himself. It's very important. Back then in the 1970s, when I served in the PLA, I feel the same way. You kind of caught in the middle between two things, what are called the red and white, or wen and wu. So you call it in the middle. On the one hand, they emphasized the political consciousness, encouraged me, everybody else, to join the party. The first thing, you know, your commander talked to you, asked you to write an application to join the party. You had to be a party member. So to be a party member, you have to show your social ability, 
you can work with the local people. You can, you know, go to their help with their harvest in the rice paddies. But at the same time, they say if you want to be a good soldier, you have to be a professional. So emphasize the shooting skill, drills, and other military training. So you caught between the political consciousness and the professionalism. But somehow the PLA back then, still today, try to combine these together, make it a professional party's army, loyal to the CCP and also can fight in the war. While we're on this topic, thinking about that balance today, how do you see the increasing focus on politics and ideology under Xi Jinping affecting the combat readiness of the PLA? Is it possible to strike that balance of competence and loyalty and political loyalty? Or do you think an increasing focus on political loyalty has a negative effect on competence? Well, seems to me, the current situation shows that political loyalty is uh, most important. They could replace a commander of the rocket force with a naval officer. You know, that was not, you know, from the strategic force, but just transferred from outside the service. So, of course, that would not, you know, work very well for him to situated to know the strategic force. But of course, so probably he's the best choice for Xi Jinping to consolidate his control of the military. So politics still in command in those days. But of course, there's a, today's PLA and the plans are different from that in the 1970s. They try to balance between the politics and the professionalism, try to balance between the people and technology. So uh, from time to time, we see uh, the problems there. They have to make a compromise or even sacrifice one over the other. I wonder if we can now shift a little bit to focusing on the development of the, of the plan from around the time that Mao dies in 1976 up up through today, we, we were just talking about some aspects of this under the current leadership. But you write a bit about, I mean, two leaders that maybe we can uh, dwell on for a minute. First is uh, Jiang Zemin and his approach to thinking about maritime power and the plan. And of course, we had a very significant naval event during Jiang's time in power, which was the third Taiwan Strait crisis. Can you give an overview of the development of the plan during the Zhang period? Of course, I think for us non-military people, we, we think of the 90s as the party navigating the collapse of the Soviet Union, Tiananmen Square, but also a recalibration on economic strategy, entrance into the WTO. What was happening in the Navy at that time during the 1990s? Well, during the 1990s, Navy realized there's a good opportunity for the naval development because uh, Jiang's regime, as you mentioned, frustrated by the limited sea power 
and access to the international market. So there wasn't just uh, the sea routes limits, and also the China's trade depends on the foreign shipping. China need to build its own shipping capacity. Of course, need a naval protection. They were just not there. So at that time, plans commander Admiral Liu Huaqing suggested to Jiang Zemin that China need to be a sea power, and Jiang agreed. Jiang passed the first China's maritime law and made the maritime sovereignty and maritime interest for the national sovereignty. Jiang also make Liu Huaqing, so-called China's Ma Han, <laughs> who uh, became the cornerstone of this uh, maritime expansion, uh, the third leader in the Chinese government. Number three, never, you know, have a PLA general animal ranking that high, and that's the first time, number three in the political bureau as the vice chairman of the CCP Central Committee and the vice chairman of the CMC Central Military Commission. So during those years, in the 1990s, Jiang Zemin worked with Liu Huaqing, promoted maritime interest and naval development. But of course, as you know, Liu Huaqing also the commander-in-chief of the suppression force in Tiananmen Square, he's the commander-in-chief to crashed pro-democracy demonstration in Tiananmen Square in 1989. Yeah, and if, if I'm not mistaken, you're writing further about Liu Huaqing, correct, in, a, in another project? Yes. Yeah, I work with uh, a naval press for next project. The title, exactly the same title, China's Mahan. Admiral Liu Huaqing, kind of, uh, you know, by biography of his military career and uh, wasn't his personality or uh, achievement, but was his right person at the right time. China chose him at that time. He became the right person to promote China's interest in the maritime sovereignty. Can I ask a question about Liu, which is he's advocating for China to really become or have blue water capability. Was that controversial at the time or was it also the case that Liu was advocating for China to become a blue water navy as China's economic and military power are expanding and it just made sense? for China to think beyond the first island chain? In other words, was Liu that special, or was it also that Liu came about at a time when China had the power to have ambitions to think beyond the first island chain? Yeah, actually Liu promoted this idea of building the big ships during Deng Xiaoping era in late 1970s, early 80s. Liu suggested, and he sent a report to Deng Xiaoping about building the large ships, at least 5,000 tons. And then during Jiang's time, Liu, the first one suggested to build China's aircraft carriers. So he considered as the 
father of the Chinese aircraft carriers. So with those uh, strong idea, the Chinese leader believed that uh, could be possible or necessary for China to develop a blue water navy for China's trade and economic purposes, and also for security reason about how to defend China. Okay, so Mao had been developed this uh, proactive defense, defend China in neighboring countries. China is too big, too large. PLA is still secondary, inferior to the superpowers. So we could not wait at home. We will not win a national defense. So the best way to stop the potential foreign invasion in the foreign countries like Korea and Vietnam Mao very glad about the result of the Korean War. He believed China's intervention in Korea guaranteed a 20-year peace for China. And he did again in Vietnam, sent overseas 300,000 troops to the jungle fighting against Americans in Vietnam War. So this proactive defense had been land-going, ground defense. Now, no more. Jiang realized that the land or ground proactive defense limited. So he moved from the ground defense to ocean defense. So from land war to a naval war. With a strong navy, we now could defend China where? A South China Sea. Just in case if anything goes wrong between America and China, where's the battleground? South China Sea, those islands. You can drop the bombs, you know, the 800 miles or even 1,000 miles, so we don't worry about Beijing and Shanghai. So, you know, with this calculation, the Navy became very important, not just uh, uh, for the overseas shipping and trade, and also for the national defense. The further they could sail, the better, the safer for China's security. There's a lot more... I'd like to talk to you about, but for the interest of time, I wondered if we could use the remaining few minutes to talk about something that we briefly discussed when we were over at the U.S. Naval Institute, which is Taiwan scenarios and thinking about the role of plan in Taiwan scenarios. I, I suppose as a as a first question, how do you assess the likely strategy Beijing will use if it believes that a, a political settlement over unification is impossible, do you foresee that there would, that the most likely uh, event we should plan for is a direct assault on Taiwan? Or do you see the possibility of other scenarios that Beijing could approach if it feels like it has to dramatically escalate? Yeah, it is a several scenarios, but uh, could be escalated to a you know, large-scale landing. Depends on, again, the political situation in Beijing depends what Xi Jinping needs. So since late 1950, Taiwan and offshore islands had been used by Mao as a political international bargaining chips 
and uh, even deal with uh, America. After Nixon's visit, China in 1972, so Taiwan played a very important role in Beijing's foreign policy. So especially the U.S. policy. So now she could use it again to deal with America. But since it's not very effective, so she began to escalate more aggressive the situation in the Taiwan Strait. As we mentioned during the talk about the new policy toward uh, Kuomei and Mazu, aggressive policy uh, toward those offshore islands. So that's considered as the, the new moves. But also we can see she just tried to serve his agenda. Okay, the second year of his third term, he need to show some achievement or accomplishment. Don't have to be, a, you know, a landing of Taiwan, but anything could be useful for his justification for his third, fourth terms later on. So he's a prepared, uh, especially plans prepared for several possibility in the Taiwan streets. But the landing of Taiwan, probably not the first on the list. Do you have any sense on the level of confidence you think the PLA in general and plan in particular has about its ability to fight and win a war against a major power like the United States? One of the points you often hear made is that the PLA has not fought really since the late 1970s, in the 1979 border war with Vietnam. So I think it's understood that they don't have a lot of real world experience. The point is also made that the United States has not fought a large scale war against a major power in a long time either. But what is your own sense about how much confidence the PLA senior leadership would have about their ability in combat? Not that much. They, that's why they try to have a war without America. So the war in Ukraine, very encouraging, since Americans not coming. So they like to fight war against a Taiwanese Navy or even Japanese Navy equipped with American technology. So they try to get what they need without a mark, direct American intervention and involvement. So they had a better chance to win or to reach the goal before Americans could intervene. That's a point well taken. Xiaobing, there's so much more we could talk about, but I see we're already at 40 minutes. And um, if anyone has a commute longer than this and they're still listening, then, then that's a tragedy in and of <laughs> itself. So I want to thank you for your time today. And again, the book, which is just published by Naval Institute Press, I think published just two weeks ago uh, is when it first appeared, is called China's New Navy, The Evolution of Plan, which is the PLA Navy, From the People's Revolution to a 21st Century Cold War. Xiaobing, thank you so much for this work and, and your continued scholarship uh, exploring the development, history, and, and growth of, of Chinese military. It's, it's really wonderful to read and learn from you. Well, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, 
The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 